Well, amen. What an amazing time of song and singing and just praising him. Amen. Uh, This morning we are continuing our series, Chasing Carrots. And we have been on this uh, series now. This is week three. And so we've covered quite a bit of ground already. Uh, We've been talking about this idea of the endless pursuit of more. The endless pursuit of more. And if there's one thing as we've kind of made clear in this series so far that our culture is consumed with is more. More of whatever it is that we think will make us happy. And as we've expressed last couple of weeks here, the idea is if I could just get that. If I could just have this, if I get that raise, if I get that relationship, if I get that car, if I can move into that house, if I can have that thing, then finally I'll be satisfied, I'll be content, I'll be happy. But many of us, and I got to believe as we've gotten older, uh, even as we've gotten older, many of us have realized the things that we thought would really satisfy us, that would really fulfill us, that would really bring us that contentment and that happiness in the world, the stuff in the world, or maybe a position, or maybe the respect or the admiration of someone else. We thought if I could just get that, then I would be happy. As we've lived our lives, we realize that's not exactly true. Now, it's great to be appreciated. It's great to be um, admired. It's great to be looked up to. But we better be careful that as followers of Christ, as we talked about that first week when we talked about fame, we want to be careful that when we have a platform or we have any level of attention being shown to us, we are very quick and honest to reflect that back to the Father. To say, no, 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 like John the Baptist did in our first study of this this series, we are not going to use our platform to elevate self, to elevate our, you know, our, our, product or our thing or our stand or whatever it is, we're going to reflect it back to God. It's not about us. It's about him. So when you are given a platform by God in some position in your job, or maybe in your family or in our culture, as we talked about, some that are famous use their platform of fame to preach Christ, to elevate the name of Christ. And so whatever that is for you, maybe you see in your own life, how God has given you the opportunity, even in your job to use your platform to share Christ or the truth that it's all about him and what he's doing through you. Last week, we talked about money and stuff, money and stuff, and how there's a pull from our culture to chase money and things. And we realized again last week, looking into the the word of God, that our lives, our, our very lives do not consist of the amount or the amount of stuff or the things that we have in our bank account. Your life does not consist of the things you have, meaning it's not only what you have that makes you who you are. That there is so much more to who you are in Christ than your stuff. And here's the thing I hope that we've learned. Now, in my lifetime, I've seen this two times as an adult. So I don't know many of you have probably seen this much more. But in two times since I've been an adult, I've seen people lose all the stuff they thought really mattered most. In 2008, a lot of people had a lot of hope in the stock market and these and this and their jobs. And they realized, oh, that's not, I can't really count in that. And then 2020 hit, and a lot of people lost jobs, lost work, lost income, market things. It just was, it was crazy to start to realize, wow, I've been banking everything in this stuff. And I thought this stuff would bring me happiness. And to be honest, this is why our culture wants the stuff. They want the money. They want the things because we want to be able to hold on to what we think is security. If I can just have a big enough bank account, then I'll be secure. Then I'll have peace. And see, that's really what we're chasing. 
We really are chasing peace. We're chasing that, that feeling of to just be at rest, to know that I don't have to worry anymore. I don't have to fear what's going to happen. And the reality is the peace that we are all chasing only comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ. John 14, 27, peace I give unto you, Jesus said, not as the world gives. You know what that means? Your, your house, your bank account, all the blessings that you have and praise God for them, that is not where you find your peace. You can be thankful, you can enjoy the blessings of God, but that bank account, if you're getting your peace from your bank account, you're going to be restless for the rest of your life. Because it's just a roller coaster. You know, oh no, preacher, you don't know. I got, I got pretty good bank account. I'm pretty, I'm pretty set. That's fine. It's just moth and, and dust. It's going to corrupt it, and thieves break in and steal. It's just, it's just temporary. And that's, that might give you peace for a moment, but it's not going to give you eternal peace. To where you know, when you leave this world, you don't have to wonder. What's going to happen? You don't have to fear what does lie ahead after I leave this life. No, you have a peace that goes beyond into eternity, and it's found in Jesus Christ. But our culture wants to tell you different. Watch TV for even just a few moments, and you're going to find out every commercial, right? Every advertisement is trying to get you to believe you don't really have contentment without this. Now, if you had this, then you'll be happy. And Christians get caught up in this stuff too. Christians, believers, start chasing the stuff to where they think their life consists of the amount of stuff they have. And I just, I, I, I know I struggle with it. I know many here probably struggle with it. And it just frustrates me when I see in my own life that I discount the peace and the joy that I have in Christ and think I need something else to satisfy. You see, that's what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is this pursuit of more. This morning, we're going to be diving into the idea of the pursuit of perfection. Now, I've got to be honest, this is going to be a hard one for me to preach on because, I mean, obviously. <clears throat> so moving on, we're going to talk about the pursuit of perfection. The idea that everything has to be perfect, and when it is finally perfect, then I'll be happy. When my relationship is perfect, when the house is finally finished, praise God. When that project is finally done, when things at work are perfect, when I have a perfect day, I find the perfect parking spot, I get the perfect deal, right? I use the perfect Kroger points to get the perfect price on my perfect gas. Like everything has to be perfect. Perfect hair, right? We talked about this a little bit in week one. Perfect social media post. Right? The perfect selfie where your arm doesn't look weird, right? Like it's like grotesque because it's got a weird angle or your chin's not doing weird stuff. We all have that. Don't beat yourself up about it. It's just life, okay? Nobody looks good all the time. Just going to be able to know that. But we do. We strive for perfection. If I can just get it perfect, then everything will be great. Now let me say, striving for excellence and doing your very best in your field or in your life, is a good thing to strive for. I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive for excellence in anything we're going to talk about this morning. So I want to kind of set the stage. I'm not saying don't strive for excellence. I'm not saying don't do your best. I'm saying give everything you've got for the glory of God. Work hard and do your best and strive for excellence. But we have to acknowledge if we're striving for perfection, we're going to be disappointed. 
Strive for excellence. Do your very best. Give your all. Right? Work hard. As we said before, work is actually a blessing of God. I know many of us don't want to hear that. And we've said this before, but work is a blessing. God gave us work. And we should work hard for his glory. But striving for excellence and striving for perfection are not the same thing. When I think about striving for excellence, I do think we should and try to give our very best. I hope my doctor, whenever I see my doctor and he's talking to me about things, I hope my doctor is striving for excellence. I hope he's not just like, well, you're fine. I mean, I don't know what that is. I've never seen one of those before on on someone's leg like that, but I'm sure it'll be fine. Just go on home, take some aspirin, you'll be good. I'm sure we'll we'll be fine. I don't really want my doctor to have a whatever attitude. I want there to be a striving for excellence. I hope the person that's doing construction on my home is striving for excellence. Not just this, well, well, no one will see that from 53 kind of mindset, you know. (laughs) That'll be fine. We'll just put some stuff over top of it. You'll never know, right? I hope people that are doing these kinds of things, by the way, that means us, right, in our fields. I hope we're striving for excellence. But I do know that there are some here, either in person or online, that for you, this idea of perfection is more than that. It's an actual pull that you feel, that it has to be perfect all the time. For some, this idea is a slightly annoying and irritating behavior our spouse or our children have that we have to endure. This or that always has to be in its place. Like, I mean, some of us have husbands or wives that are like this, right? It's not like a big deal for them, but it's just this irritating behavior that every now and then kind of rears its ugly head where it's, everything's got to be in its place all the time, perfect, right? It's not a life thing. It's not a big thing. It's just a little thing, but it kind of drives you crazy because you're married to this person. And you're like, could you just chill out a little bit? So the forks were in a little different in the dishwasher. We'll live. We all know there's only one way to load a dishwasher, right? But we're not going to go into that. It's got to be perfect, right? And some of us, like I said, it's, it's not even, we, we don't even know. And I say we because you're going to find out this is my, this is me. This is something I've struggled with for a long time is I have this mindset in certain areas, it's got to be perfect. It's not, it's not just in everything. I'm not like this in everything, but in some things, I got, it's just got to be right. There's, <laughs> there's one way to do it and it's my way and it's the right way. And you can do it the wrong way, but that's not my way. So for some of us, it's just an annoying, kind of irritating behavior that it's really not a big deal. But for others, it actually is more than that. That if it is not perfect, if you don't have the perfect day, that it actually affects your day, your week, your month. I mean, it actually gets you down. You actually get down on yourself and you start to feel down and you just are discouraged and disappointed because something wasn't perfect. Or maybe in your mind it was perfect and someone didn't acknowledge it as perfect. You thought it was the perfect social media post and you didn't get the likes that you thought you were going to get. You didn't get the comments you thought you were going to get. You thought everything was perfect when you got the house ready and someone walked in and made a critical statement that they didn't realize was critical and it just crushes you because you thought it's perfect. It's finally perfect and you were happy and then just that quick someone took it away. See, for some of us, it's not just a slightly irritating sort of behavior that we have. It's actually something that affects our very lives. To kind of understand where we might be in this area, I want to give you three types of perfectionists. 
Three types of perfectionists. Now, if you see or hear, rather, yourself in one of these, please do not raise your hand. Please do not shout. Don't say amen. Okay? This is just between you and the Lord. No one's going to know. Okay? Three types of perfectionists that they say exist in our culture. There's a self-oriented perfectionist. You hold unrealistically high expectations of yourself and battle with feelings of guilt, often obsessing to the point of inefficiency. You're prone to procrastination and you struggle with deep feelings of inadequacy. You you have such high, unrealistic expectations of yourself that when you feel like you can't meet those, you just don't try. You just don't put it forward. You don't try. You don't put the effort out there. You just procrastinate and you wait and you wait because if I can't do it perfectly, I'm just not going to do it. And when you don't do it perfect, you put that on yourself and you feel guilt and you're just obsessed with, I just got to get it right. I got to get it right. And we're going to find out in a little bit that I think one of the reasons is, is because you fear what others think of you. And you're so fearful of their approval or their lack of approval being given that you literally stress over every little thing until it is perfect. And the funny thing is nobody has said anything to you. Nobody's put this on you. This is just you've kind of created this in your own mind. You've done this on your own as we have at times. This is a self-oriented. I put perfectionism on myself. Externally oriented perfectionist. You believe others expect you to be perfect. To cope with the pressure, you often use self-deprecating humor as a defense. You often feel alone, depressed, and desperate because you know you will never be enough. So you actually express it outwardly. You think everyone else wants you to be perfect as well. You put it inward. I need to do this. I need to do this. Nobody said a word, but you just do this. The other way is I actually think everyone wants me to be perfect, and it's got to be perfect all the time, and if it's not then I feel as though I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not adequate. And this happens in marriages all the time. This idea that a spouse, maybe the husband or the wife, thinks the other person wants them to be perfect. The house has got to be perfect. Everything's perfect, all the time perfect. And when you don't meet that, you actually think, man, this person doesn't think I'm enough because I'm not perfect. The other person may or may not have said anything about this. But it's something we put on ourselves. We think this is how it's got to be. And then there's others-oriented perfectionist. You expect others to live up to your impossible standards because you tend to lack empathy. You often tear others down or use abrasive and demeaning humor towards those who don't meet your standards. I'm just going to pause here for a moment because I think in this room right now, watching online or in this room, there's a chance that one of you, one of me, fall into one of these three categories. You feel like you're not enough, so when you're around people, you make fun of yourself. You point out your faults because you think they see them, and before they can acknowledge them, you point them out in a joking way because you feel like that's going to take the pressure off because you know you're not perfect. Or you look at others And when they don't meet your unrealistic expectations, that, by the way, you don't even meet for yourself, you start to use abrasive or demanding language of them. You demean them. You tear them down. But you do it in humor. You laugh at the end or you make a little joke and somehow that's okay. I've always found that interesting when somebody will say something mean to someone or unkind and then laugh as though that's implied joking. It's like when somebody says something super offensive and then tries to save it by saying what? 
Well, no offense. That was a really stupid thing you just said, but hey, no offense. Because they don't meet your standard. And rather than be honest, see, you're not willing to be honest and say, wow, you really failed my expectation. You don't want to be honest because you're playing as though you're somehow spiritual. So you're not going to be straight up mean with them. You'll, you'll kind of cover it up and kind of guise your disgust with humor. See, I think this is something that if we're being real this morning, some of us may battle with. And here's the thing. If you are in that third category this morning, your first defensive mechanism may be to think, well, yeah, but they were blah, blah, blah. Yeah, they didn't get it right. They didn't. But you know what? If they would have just done this, I'd have been fine. That's kind of part of the problem. Understanding these types of perfectionism or these types of perfectionists that people battle with and understanding that, by the way, none of us are perfect. This is in the culture. This is in the world. We have these expectations on each other. We think we want to be perfect. We think we can be perfect and we expect others to be perfect. But understanding we can't be perfect. None of us are. I want to step into an idea of spiritual perfection. So I think if we understand spiritual perfection, we'll understand our idea of perfectionism in our world today. I want to look at a scripture and see how we can overcome this pull from the flesh. So I want to look at an example that could maybe give us an idea of this level of perfection that we put on ourselves, that we think we have, or that we put on others, and realize that spiritually speaking, we fall short. Mark chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. If you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seats there, there are some Bibles provided. Uh, You can turn to page 706. So 706, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, Mark chapter 10. So Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 17. Familiar passage for some. We're just going to highlight a couple things here to help us understand this idea of spiritual perfection. So Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Jesus goes on to say, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. Verse 20. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these I observed from my youth. Let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom in these things. Father, Lord, I know as we tackle this idea of being a perfectionist, Lord, I know many in this church, many in this congregation, many watching online, myself included, can battle with these from small degrees to large degrees. Lord, it's something that we don't really even acknowledge sometimes that we're struggling with because maybe we don't even realize what we're doing. Lord, we, we put on ourselves a weight, a burden of to be perfect. Everything's just got to be perfect. And when it's not or we don't feel like we can reach that level of perfection, we, we just don't even try. We procrastinate. We put things off. We beat ourselves up and we tear ourselves down. Lord, sometimes we feel the weight of others, that others think that we're supposed to be perfect. And so we try to live up to their expectations and try to be perfect in their eyes. But really, Lord, all that does is create 
a mindset in our own minds where we, we know we're not good enough. We're just playing. We're just putting on a mask. We're putting on a show. We're pretending. But really, we fear that if we weren't perfect, they wouldn't love us. They wouldn't accept us. And then, Father, there are some that battle with putting these unrealistic expectations on others. That we believe that they should be perfect and how they act towards us and all that they do. They should do it perfect every single time. And when they don't, it's our job to make them aware of that. And we do it in ways that are subtle. We do it in ways that are kind of backhanded compliments, Lord. And we try to act as though we're just joking. But, Lord, some in this church, some in this room, myself included at times, we can really honestly be trying to control, trying to get our way. And so, Father, in all these things, I pray that we would understand that, that, you, that you are the only perfect one. And that we'll never be perfect. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd set free those that are battling with these things. Those that feel like they're not good enough. Lord, I pray that, that you would remind them as we go through this message this morning that you, you love them just as they are. And you never called them to be perfect so that they might be saved. And so, Father, again, I pray that you would be glorified in all of this. Give, give us wisdom now in your word and the application thereof. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So understanding spiritual perfection. We think we are good, humanly speaking. We think we are good. In this story here in Mark chapter 10, this is the story of the rich young ruler. We don't know his name, uh, but he was wealthy. And so he comes to Jesus and he wants to know how to be saved, how to have eternal life. That's really what he says. And he bows down before him. He's humbling himself before Jesus. He's saying, I, I want to know what do I have to do to have eternal life. Just tell me and I'll do it. What do you need me to do? Then what is Jesus's response? Does he respond with law or grace? He gives him law. He says, no, what do the commandments say? And I love this. He actually says, what does the law say? Reminding this man, you already know the answer. So what does the law say? And he gives him some example commands. And I've always got a note. Do you notice here that to not kill means to not murder. Do you notice that adultery, murder, stealing is right in line with honor your mother and father? Do you see that God says, hey, I want you to live in such a way that not only do you not do these things, but you actually honor your parents? You know what it means to honor your parents? To give them respect and reverence. That means grandparents as well. And so for any students in here, teenagers in here, those watching online... When, when you have a parent that tells you something, you don't have to agree. You don't have to understand. You don't have to accept it. You just have to obey it. And that's just the reality of it. Well, I, well, I don't think it's right that my parents, that's fine. The Bible doesn't say, if you think it's a good idea, do that. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And I'll never forget, we had a student years back that her family was making a decision to leave the church for different, different things years and years ago. And she was in our youth group and I was a youth pastor. And she came to me and she said, if I can't go to church here, I'm not going to church anywhere. I just don't want to leave. And it was really hard for me and for Sandra, my wife, who we love this girl. She was like a, we jokingly said she was like our adopted daughter. Like she was just over our house all the time. And so it was really hard for us because I wanted to be like, what? Okay, stay. Yeah, like that's great. Just keep coming. But I had to tell her, you know, and I said her name, and I won't say her name out loud, but I said her name, and I said, what, is, what does the Bible say about this? And she's like, I know I'm supposed to obey my parents, but I said, you really don't need the but in that sentence. You just need to obey. 
I, ha- I hate it too. I don't like it. I wish it was different. I'm just going to pray that God will lead, guide, and direct. But I, my encouragement was you have to obey your parents. And I love that Jesus makes a point of listening in here. And that's not even the sermon. That was just free. You just get that. That was four minutes of just free preaching. So what does Jesus go on to do here? He lists these commands. And he tells this young man or this man, hey, what do the commandments say? And what is his response to this list of commands? What does the law say? And the man answered what? I have observed these from my youth. He's saying and declaring to Jesus, oh no, Jesus, as far as the law is concerned, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. He desires to have a guaranteed eternal life and Jesus knowing his heart uses the law of God to break his prideful heart and humble him. See, he came humble in form. He knelt down before Jesus, but he wasn't humble in heart. Yeah, he, he knelt down and said, oh, what do I need to do? But his pride was still very strong in his heart because he thought, I'm perfect. I've done all this. So Jesus reminds him because the man refuses to humble himself truly in heart to admit that he is actually sinful and not perfect. He thinks he measures up to God's standard of perfection and he couldn't be more wrong. Look what Jesus says in verses 21 through 22. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lacks, go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. Again, I got a note here. Notice that we always say believe, which is fine. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The Bible says that. We emphasize the belief in salvation. Jesus emphasized follow me in salvation. Yes, there's belief, but a belief that leads to following, a belief that leads to submission, to surrender. And so he says to this man, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. And when you do this, you'll have treasure in heaven. Verse 22, and he was sad at that saying and went away grieved for he had great possessions. Nowhere do we read in the gospels that this man did what Jesus said and comes and follows him. Now, is there a chance he maybe did it at some point? Maybe. But the text seems to suggest that he had such great wealth and refusing to give up his wealth, he left sad. See, he thought he was perfect. He thought he was good. And Jesus reminds him the essence of the first commandment, which is what? Thou shalt have no other gods. What was his God that he put before God? It was his money, his wealth. Kind of reminds us of last week. What did Jesus say? I mean, Jesus is honest. You can't serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. So what was the master that he was choosing to serve? Money. He didn't want to serve Jesus. He didn't want to humble himself to Jesus. He didn't want to submit to to Jesus as Savior. He wanted his money. And I guarantee you, this guy, most likely, just based on culture and what I know of human nature, he probably didn't hear no a lot if he was that wealthy. So he went to Jesus thinking Jesus would give him special treatment, most likely. Oh, look how wealthy you are. We actually see this in the book of James, don't we? Those that came in rich, they got special treatment. Those that came in poor, well, you can kind of sit over here. Just be quiet. Don't let anyone see you. That's human nature. We are a respecter of persons. Do you notice that Jesus does not show a respect of persons? He says, hey, the same thing I'm going to tell you is the same thing I'm going to tell these disciples. All you need to do is surrender, follow me, believe, and, and you're good. We can, we can do this. But he left sad. He thought he was perfect. He thought he was fine. But he couldn't have been more wrong. I also don't want to gloss over the fact in verse 21, the motivation for why Jesus said this. 
Jesus did not say this because he wanted the man's money. Verse 21, then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said. You see, Jesus was loving enough to tell him the truth. He loved him enough to tell him the truth. And I think we need to honestly just pause there for a moment and acknowledge that when we read things in Scripture that we don't like, convicting things, challenging things, it's not there because Jesus just wants us to be uncomfortable and feel like, oh, man, he just is so mad at me or he doesn't like me. He doesn't want me to have any fun. No, it's there because he loves us enough to know that real contentment comes in being a follower of Christ, not in being a follower of the things of the world. And so this man thought he was good, but he couldn't have been more wrong. And the truth is, you and I don't measure up either. We don't measure up. We never could. You and I could never fulfill God's perfect law. We cannot do it because we are at our core sinful. I'm going to go to another passage, Romans chapter 3. Go there with me. Romans chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, 793. 793, I believe, is the page number there. But Romans chapter 3. And as we talk about the idea of perfection and being perfect, we need to understand that not only did this young man not measure up, even though he thought he was good, we don't measure up either. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, and we can pause here and praise God for that transition. That's the truth, right? No one can be justified by the law. But now... The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which, was, which is, sorry, by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we've got to read verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see that verse 20 is key. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul makes it clear that no one can be justified by keeping the law or the commandments of God. Not because the law is weak, but because the people are sinful. We cannot be justified by keeping the law of God, by keeping the commandments, even the Ten Commandments. We cannot keep the moral law of God perfectly, not because the law is broken, but because we are broken in sin. Because we at our core are sinful, we cannot perfectly keep the law of God. And so because of that, we read in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God, the only way we attain the righteousness of God is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see verse 23, for all have sinned. You know what's amazing about that word all? It literally translates in the Greek to all. It's all. So how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All y'all. All of y'all. Everyone. We all, all of us have fallen short. So this means spiritually no one's perfect. So that weight you put on yourself it's not needed because you're not perfect. God knows you're not perfect, by the way. Can we just acknowledge that God tells us you're not perfect? 
Stop living like you're trying to be. You're not perfect. You're never going to be perfect. But then verse 24, I'm so thankful that the word of God continues to give us this truth. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. So you're not justified by keeping the law. You're justified by the grace of Jesus Christ. That through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, he offered himself on the cross. He died for your sins, was buried and rose again. And when you receive that for yourself, you are set free in his grace. You see, Paul makes it clear that no one can be justified by keeping the commandments of God, not because the law is broken, but because we are sinful. And that is the wonder of grace. It is the faith in Christ and his righteousness that saves us, granting us eternal life. So if it's all grace and it's all Christ, how can I boast in my salvation when I did nothing to earn my salvation? The answer is I can't. You see, when we live our lives through the lens of grace, everything changes. So spiritually speaking, we're not perfect. We're broken. We can never be perfect. So we needed Jesus Christ and his righteousness given to us through salvation that now we can be made the sons and daughters of God and receive his righteousness. Because that is true, and I understand grace, it changes how I see myself in this world. You see, spiritual perfection is not attainable in myself. So if I'm not perfect spiritually, then I can never be perfect in the flesh. And if that's true, and I see my life through grace, the lens of grace, now it changes how I live my very life. I want to do a little comparison here to those that choose to live your life through perfectionism and those that choose to live their life through grace. So when you look at your life through the lens of perfectionism or grace, we can see how it changes day to day. A perfectionist focuses on what I can do. It's what I do. I'm perfect. Look what I did. It's all about me. I have to do this and I got to do it perfectly. A perfectionist focuses on what I do. Through the lens of grace, we focus on what Jesus has done. See, it's not about what I do. It's about what Jesus has done. Perfectionist, it's about me. Grace, it's about Jesus. A perfectionist, if I obey, God will love me. If I obey, God will love me. Through the lens of grace, because God loves, I can obey. Let me say that again. If I obey, God will love me. Because God loves, I can obey. Do you see the difference there? It is huge. And so many Christians, listen now, hear me. So many of you grew up in churches or were around churches that were what we would call legalistic churches, and they beat it into your head that if you don't do this, then God is not happy with you. God is angry with you. God doesn't love you. And you've got to keep performing and keep performing and keep performing and just keep doing. Never mind the fact that you don't even know him as Savior. Never mind the fact that you have questions. Never mind the fact that you don't understand really what is going on in all of this serving and why do I do this? Nope, just keep obeying. And if you keep obeying, God will love you. And the reality in the scriptures is, no, no, no. When I receive the love of God through Christ, now I can obey with the right heart, with the right mindset, with the right attitude. But man, if I flip it around and I think I have to do this to get God to love me, we have completely missed the whole point of the gospel. Which leads to the next comparison. Perfectionists are looking to win God's approval. When we see our lives through the lens of grace, we realize that we're living from God's approval. I don't need to gain God's approval by what I do. I'm living from the approval of God. 
Understanding that I am not perfect spiritually, God knew and received me in Christ just as I was freely. When we realize that truth, when we realize our service to him is merely an overflow of the serving he continues to do for us, it changes why we do what we do and it changes how we live for him. It's not about being perfect anymore. It's about striving to live in the joy of the Lord. We're almost out of time, but I want to give you two more points. And we're not going to unpack these as as much, but I want to give you these points before we wrap up this morning because I believe it's important. When you see your life through the lens of grace and you understand what Jesus has done, the pressure is off. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect. The pressure is off. And so because the pressure is off, I'm going to give you two things that I pray God would allow you to apply to your heart and to your life as he's been doing in my life. Because there's pressure is off, I'm going to choose people over perfection. I'm going to choose people over perfection. You can write it down for time. We're not going to turn there, but Luke chapter 10, verses 41 and 42. Luke 10, 41 through 42. This is the story of Mary and Martha. Popular story. Jesus comes over for dinner. By the way, that's pretty scary for some of us to think about. Jesus coming over for dinner. You're like, okay, I get nervous when the in-laws come to dinner. I don't even want to know what it's like when Jesus shows up. But they're having dinner and the dinner's done. And and you guys know the story. Martha's in the kitchen, right, cleaning up. Or she's in another room or at least doing some work. And where's Mary? What's Mary doing? She's at the feet of Jesus. She's just, that's that's a position of discipleship. To be at the feet of Jesus is a sign of, I want to learn and listen to what Jesus has. And Martha gets upset. Why? Because Mary's not helping. And so she goes and she complains to Jesus. Hey, tell Mary to help me in the kitchen. And Jesus' point is, buffly, she has chosen the better thing. You see, Martha was so concerned about getting the dishes done, getting the table cleared, making sure everything was perfect. Instead of realizing, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in my home, and I could be sitting before him, learning and listening and just engaging with him. And he actually says, I will not tell Mary to not do this because she has chosen the better thing. Is it wrong to clean up the house? Is it wrong to keep a tidy house? No. But in the timing that that was, it was so much important that Martha chose people, chose Jesus over perfection. And so in our own lives, maybe there's times where you feel that weight to be perfect or you choose to enjoy the relationship with your kids, to enjoy time with a spouse. Choose people, not perfection. If we aren't careful in our pursuit for perfection, we will neglect to see the opportunity God is giving us to spend with him or someone he has brought into our path. Choose people over perfection. Another application I would love to give you is to choose perfect love over perfect performance. Choose perfect love over perfect performance. And so we are, we are really short on time, but we are going to go here. I was not going to do this, but I really think we need to read these verses together. So Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. If you're using a Bible provided, page 674. 674 is the page number. Matthew chapter 5. Choose perfect love over perfect performance. Verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. 
You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. Hate their, thine enemy. Now, nowhere in the law, just so we're clear, nowhere in the law does it say, hate your enemies. That's not a command. That's not anything like that. This is tradition. But thou shalt love thy neighbor is in the Old Testament. So he says here, you have heard it said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I stand to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Go down to verse 46. For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? Publican is a tax collector, and in Jewish mind, this is the worst kind of sinner. Sinner. And so they're saying here, if you love them which love you, so somebody is loving you and you love them, what reward do you have? That's Anyone can do that. Even the worst kind of sinner can do that culturally to their minds. Verse 47, and if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Verse 48, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now we'll read that last verse there. It kind of seems to contradict what we've been talking about, doesn't it? And it says right there, be ye therefore perfect as who is perfect? Your father in heaven. That is perfection, perfection, right? There's, that is no fault, no sin, no blemish, nothing. Be that. I read that and I would instantly tell Jesus, I check out, I'm done, I can't do it. But I want to unpack that a little bit because I want to make sure we understand the word perfect. This word does not mean flawless or sinless or without spot, meaning no error. What it does mean, though, is an idea of maturity, completeness, fullness. The idea here to be perfect is in relation to the idea of fully grown in comparison to a child or an adult. So in context, Jesus is speaking of loving those that sin against you, those that persecute you, those that hate you, those that are mean to you, that say things against you. He's saying, don't just love those that are easy to love who are loving you or those who are your brethren. Love those who hate you. Love those who are your enemies. And he says in context, the reason I can tell you to do this is because when you love that way, you're loving in a mature way and the way that God loves. You see, contextually, God is saying here, Jesus is saying here rather, that God loves even those that hate him. Does he not? For God so loved the world. The world is full of broken and sinful people who don't know him, but he still loves them and loves them enough that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. And so if we desire to live in a way that would reflect Christ's likeness, we need to love one another and love those that we would call our enemies in a mature way so that God's love would be displayed. We're choosing perfect love over perfect performance. People will let you down. They will continually neglect to meet your standards, your expectations. By the way, even expectations that are right expectations to have. There's expectations we have that in a marriage or in a family that it's fine to have those expectations, but people will fail them. People will let you down. And when they do let you down and reveal that, shocker, they're not perfect, let's choose to not get angry or frustrated but instead choose to extend perfect love to, of Christ to them. Maybe give them grace as there is something going on that you are not aware of. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they weren't aware. Maybe they're going through their own personal struggles. And rather than just demand perfection, show a little empathy, show a little grace. Maybe realize that your way isn't the only way to accomplish the task at hand. 
And if I, again, if I'm being honest, this is an area that I struggle in for me at times. And it's not with people in the church as a pastor. So don't think, oh, he's talking about me. I'm not. You guys are pretty perfect, I think, in a lot of ways. Pretty perfect church. Just kidding. Far from it. You can't have a perfect church if you don't have a perfect pastor. And you don't, you don't have a perfect pastor. I'm just going to tell you that right now. But in raising children over the years, I've struggled with this. I'd have to step back and go, wait a minute. Maybe it's not that big a deal if it's not perfectly done right now, this way, that way, and done put away right. Maybe I can give a little grace. It's kind of crazy. We were just talking about this yesterday at family game night with somebody in the kitchen there. That I realized that maybe, maybe things not done perfect, it's okay. Maybe you can just let it go. Now, again, do we just let everything go? Do we not have any standards? Do we not strive for excellence? No. But we got to be careful that we don't choose that perfection and that perfect performance and then give the impression to our children that we only love them when they're perfect. Do you know why adults think that way? Because they were raised that way. Because they were made to think, if I get it right, I get the A, I get the good grades. Oh, man, look at my parents. Look at them. They just lavish that love upon me when I'm perfect. And then when I fail, I try to mask it and hide it because I know they're going to be disappointed. And that, to me, feels like they don't really love me. So does that mean parents shouldn't be like, hey, great job on that grade? No. We rejoice with them. We're encouraged with them. But when a student, when a child rather, I think youth ministry, so I always say student. When a child comes into the home having a bad day, maybe don't bark at them to get their stuff done right now. Maybe pause, have a conversation. How can I show the love of Christ right here? And I've had to learn this. And by the way, I'm still learning this and I don't get it right. I'm still struggling in this area, but I pray by God's grace that I'll choose perfect love over perfect performance. So how can we focus on Christ and the work he's doing in our lives rather than our desire to make ourselves better on our own? How can we stop trying to be perfect and realize he's doing a work through us that we can rejoice in. God does not call us to be perfect. He calls us to be faithful. So I will pursue growing in my faith, being revived in my faith, and trust, trust in him. Let's look for ways to prioritize giving love and grace to those around us this week rather than pursuing perfection. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. And we thank you for your word as we have a time of invitation this morning, Lord. I don't know how you're working in people's hearts and minds in this time that we've spent this morning. I don't know where they're at. Lord, maybe there's individuals here that are battling with this and they feel a weight to be perfect. Everything's got to be just right all the time. And to be honest, Lord, they are just wore out. They're just tired. And maybe you would remind them of your grace. Maybe you would show them that, that you don't call them to be perfect, Lord. And you know that we all stumble, we all fail. And again, Lord, this doesn't mean that if we do fail, that there's not consequences and there's not conversations and there's not a call to repentance. Lord, of course there is. But, but I, I, Lord, I just believe that sometimes in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, we demand perfection from people. And when they don't meet it, we lash out. We aren't Christ-like. And yet, Lord, that very same person, when they go to you, when they're not perfect, they are so thankful that there's grace. There's forgiveness. Yes, Lord, there's correction and there's rebuke and there's a calling out to say, hey, this and this needs to change. 
But, Father, there's grace given to us to allow us and mercy given to us to allow us to do those things, to live in that way. And so, Father, again, I know we've covered a lot of territory this morning, a lot of information. I pray that you give us wisdom as only you can and that you would be glorified. Lord, help us to choose to choose people over perfection and to choose perfect love over perfect performance. And we thank you for the example that you gave us, Lord, through your word and the gifting of the Holy Spirit that we might grow in this. Thank you for your love and grace that when we were not perfect, you loved us anyway and offered forgiveness to us that we might know you as Savior. Father, we love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we have a time of invitation? I'm going to encourage you just to respond right there where you are, whether there in your seats or here at the altar. Maybe you want to come and pray. Mom and dad, maybe you see this in your own home. Maybe you want to come and pray and say, God, give us strength and wisdom to have the right mindset about these things. Whatever it is, would you respond to what God is doing?